Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today's Talking Politics guide is with Andrew Preston, Professor of American History here at Cambridge and an expert on American diplomacy. It's a guide to American foreign policy. These Talking Politics guides are brought to you, as ever, in partnership with the London Review of Books, whose summer sale with the Paris Review, two subscriptions for one low price, is open to Talking Politics listeners. Head to lrb.co.uk forward slash guides for more information, along with the usual lists of further readings from the LRB archive. When America was founded, the people who founded it, what was their idea of what made it different and how it was going to conduct itself in the world? Well, it was an experiment in democratic self-governance, or it was an experiment in Republican self-governance. And that's the thing that first and foremost made it different. At the time, Americans felt very much a part of the world. Certainly, the American elites felt very much a part of the world. They were part of the British Empire, and they still wanted to be very much a part of the world. But they also wanted to separate themselves to a certain extent from what was going on in Britain and from how Britain saw the world and what the mother country thought was best for the American colonies. So what was the moral mission back in the founding days? I'm not sure there was a moral mission aside from self-determination or what would later be called self-determination and founding a new country. Uh, There were certainly a lot of motivating ideas behind the American founding that were moral in terms of self-governance and representation and democracy and republicanism. And the American founders certainly wanted to spread those ideas, but not necessarily as we think American foreign policy wants to spread those ideas today. Was there a point in the 19th century, maybe you need to take the story through the 20th century, where the reality of being America in the world kind of overtook some of the ideas that they might have had at the beginning about what it was to project abroad, and somehow reality overtook the theory? Yeah, in the late 19th century, in 1898, when America went to war with Spain over Cuba, and then the Philippines got dragged in to the war because the Philippines was a Spanish colony, and it became a theater of the Spanish-American War. That's the real breakpoint in American foreign relations history when the cliche is when the United States sort of stepped onto the world stage as a great power. It was a great power even before that, but it's when Americans started thinking differently about the world and that they might have to, not always and not consistently, but that they might have to engage with the world in order to change it, not only for moral reasons or normative reasons, but also for security reasons. Before that... American foreign policy was guided by the principle of the Monroe Doctrine from 1823, which separated the world and said to the Europeans, you stay in your half of the world, we'll stay in our half of the world, and we're not going to meddle in each other's affairs. We'll still trade and we'll still have cultural relations, but we won't get involved in each other's political affairs. And that changed irrevocably in 1898-99. We'll take that story forward in a second, but you've written about this. What role does religion play in how America projects abroad? Because it's something that I think most people tend to think is a negligible feature, but it's not, right? Certainly over the last 20 years, it hasn't been a negligible feature under George W. Bush. And of course, a lot of the opponents the United States has been fighting in Al-Qaeda and other groups and in Iran, and including American allies as well in Saudi Arabia or Israel, religion is a salient 
hugely salient factor. As commentators said after 9-11, religion was brought back into American foreign policy, brought back into international relations. I would argue that it, it was always there. And what 9-11 did was it gave it a new kind of prominence. What religion has done historically is provide a kind of conscience for American foreign policy. Because for a lot of American history, the United States didn't have to intervene for security reasons or for economic reasons. And so it had a lot of choice in foreign policy. In fact, most of American foreign policy history up until the mid-20th century was a foreign policy of choice. Almost every war the U.S. fought was a war of choice. And so if you're in those circumstances where you have total choice, then it lets other factors other than we need to defend ourselves rise to the surface. And America is a very religious country, and it has a very decentralized political system where very highly mobilized religious Americans could make their influence felt on Washington to steer foreign policy in a certain direction. Because that's one of the challenges of trying to make sense of how America projects abroad, which is to do foreign policy, to do diplomacy even, is on the whole to have a single identity or a single voice. And yet the country itself has multiple identities and at points in its history has been completely divided to the point of civil war. So again, just before we do the 20th century playing out of this, how was that reconciled through the 19th century? Plural America and the single America on the world stage? Well, it's something, even as America became a great power with a very active foreign policy that the American people, the American government haven't quite sorted out. It's a very politically diverse, culturally diverse, racially diverse, religiously diverse nation. And as you said, in the 19th century, that affected American foreign policy greatly. The domestic political influence on American foreign policy was tremendously large. And that didn't go away in the 20th century. And it hasn't gone away today. And we see that with Donald Trump. We saw that with Barack Obama. Just the domestic political influence is so strong in steering American foreign policy. In the Civil War, was that partly a war about two different visions of what America could be internationally, or was it just? So the Civil War emerged over mostly internal reasons. It was over slavery, and it was also a bit over foreign policy in the sense that it had to do with westward expansion. But it was really a war about two different visions of what the United States should be, if it should be a slave nation or a, a nation that didn't have slavery. But there were foreign policy questions that ended up affecting the Civil War and also affecting how Americans thought about the world. So when the Union won the war in the last few years of the war, as it was winning the war, Abraham Lincoln started speaking of the United States as the world's last best hope and intimating in 1864 and 1865 that God was sparing the United States and saving the United States for a reason, and that the U.S. then had a responsibility to use its power to go out in the rest of the world and do good, essentially. Now, there was a, a really big time lag from the Civil War in the 1860s to when the United States really did start intervening in the world on those grounds. But when it did in 1898-99, in World War One, American leaders often referred back to the moral mission of the Civil War as something to guide them as they would go forth in the rest of the world and try and spread freedom or democracy or what have you. So the First World War is part of, therefore, that developing story of America seeing its mission in the world as in some sense to save the world. Is it a step change? Does it actually not just reflect that continuity but signal that something new was about to happen? It did and it didn't. And the First World War was a, a hugely important threshold in taking that moral mission 
of the Civil War that then starts to spread beyond America's borders in the late 19th century because of the war with Spain. And Woodrow Wilson vastly expanded that, almost not just on a global scale, but on a cosmic scale, that will make the world safe for democracy, as he said. And he wanted to spread free trade and national self-determination and to set up a League of Nations in which the United States would be an equal partner. And as I said, to spread democracy. But what Wilson didn't do, and it's not just Wilson, but most American statesmen of the time didn't do because they couldn't do. They couldn't wed that to security imperatives. So the United States entered the war because German U-boats were attacking American shipping on the high seas. And a lot of Americans thought that if Germany won the war, then the balance of power in Europe would be so skewed that eventually Germany would become this massive power. But once Germany's defeated, fairly quickly after the U.S. enters the war, that security imperative disappears. So all of a sudden, Americans are thinking, why are we following Wilson to remake the world in our image? Why are we trying to make the world safe for democracy when we don't really need to? And the step change that then comes in wedding the sort of moral mission around the world with hardcore security imperatives is World War II and the Cold War. And do you think that connection is the one that has to be made? Is that the American experience, that you can't have the moral mission if the American people in a democracy don't believe their safety is at stake? Yes, absolutely. You can have a moral mission. And throughout the 19th century, the early 20th century, America sent thousands of missionaries abroad and others abroad who, who embarked on a moral mission. But in terms of making it America's mission with the power of the, of the state, behind them. It does take that wedding of security imperatives with a moral mission. And right now, in the age of Trump, we're seeing that start to break down, where both Trump is questioning the moral mission, but also Barack Obama before him questioned the moral mission. But what's interesting is Trump is also questioning the security imperative and saying, well, these conflicts in places like Syria may not actually matter to us a great deal or as much as we thought. Maybe these dictators like Kim Jong-un a, aren't so bad, and B, maybe they're not such a threat if we can talk to them and if we can do business with them. People sometimes say that what's happening now is a revival of a kind of 1920s spirit in American public life, but also in a sense in American private life in the way that Americans think. Do you see that? I mean, do you hear echoes in some of the pulling back today of that earlier phase? I think so. I mean, you can take that analogy too far in the 20s and 30s and think that we're on the road to fascism, which I don't think is, is true. Whatever one wants to say about Donald Trump, whether he has fascist tendencies, and I think he certainly has those tendencies, there's no way that he's going to be able to implement a fascist system on the United States. But I think in a time like the 1920s into the 30s, like in the late 1970s, like today, Americans do face questions of, do we really have to be engaged around the world to the extent that we have been with great cost in terms of lives and also money? Do we really need to do that? But I think that's actually normal for any great power to go through, to go through eras where you're questioning whether should we just keep doing the same things that we've been doing? People defend the liberal international order by saying, well, it's been going on for 70 years, which is true, and it has done a lot of great things in the world, but something that's just been sort of going along for 70 years sometimes needs to be questioned and needs to be rethought, especially if in those 70 years, it has led to things like the Vietnam War and the Iraq War and other disasters of American foreign policy, as well as the successes. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So part of this is about um, America's sense of mission, but part of it is also about capacity, the ability to act. At what point in the story of the American Republic do Americans start to think self-consciously, we are not just a special nation, we are the most powerful country on earth? Is that the Second World War? Is that the Cold War? It's definitely the Second World War. You can see that consciously. And a couple of colleagues of mine here at Cambridge, John Thompson and Stephen Wertheim, separately, independently of each other, have written quite widely on this, that Americans had a very, as John Thompson calls it, they developed a sense of power and a realization of their own power and what they could do with that. What's different about the Second World War is that Americans believe they could and should apply that power in the world in order to remake the world, not necessarily in an, in an American image, but certainly along lines that would benefit not only Americans in the world in terms of the values that they cherished, but also in security terms. I mean, America had been far and away the most powerful nation economically since the 1870s, 80s, certainly by the 1890s. And it had the potential to be the the world's greatest military power by the First World War. But that potential and that latent power economically sort of don't get married to one another until World War II. And American leaders, and I think to a large extent, the American people realize this and then say, we have this power now, we can do something with it. Not only we should do something with it, but we must because of the security imperatives of Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, and then later the Soviet Union and communist China. And how much of that power then becomes about the power of the presidency? Because to go back to what we were talking about earlier, America's not an easy country to govern internally, and it's got a very divided system of government. But when America projects outwardly, the office of presidency suddenly becomes hugely important. That's exactly right. It's not a coincidence that with the growth of American power and the growth of a truly global American foreign policy after World War II, you have the rise of what's called the imperial presidency, where executive power becomes concentrated to an extent that really it is the American president that's running foreign policy and military policy as well. And Congress basically steps to one side in deferring to the president to conduct foreign policy. The last time Congress exercised its constitutional duty of declaring war, officially declaring war, was 1942. And of course, the United States has fought a lot of wars since 1943, but it's done so through a lot of alternative means of waging war, either of not declaring any war and just the president just decides on military action, as Donald Trump did in Syria, or of waging a major war on the basis of a congressional resolution, as in Vietnam, or declaring it a police action under a UN mandate, which is what Truman did in Korea. In an age of air power, and then especially in our age of, of cyber warfare and terrorism, there's a sense among the American people that this is something that the imperial presidency can't necessarily be avoided because the United States has to react very quickly to emerging threats. And who, who better to do that? than the president. That idea does, of course, have its critics as well. But the imperial presidency has arisen as a direct result of the growth of America's global power. 
So I grew up, you grew up in an age of superpower politics, the Cold War, the idea that whatever was happening in the United States was matched by something happening on the other side. And then at the end of the Cold War, there was this moment, as it's now thought of, where suddenly there was only one superpower left standing. Was that a real thing? Was the unipolar moment something that, looking back now, you think happened? I think it happened at the time, definitely. The United States was so much more powerful than the Soviet Union, which then ceased to exist. And certainly it was more powerful than Russia, which was a bit of a basket case in the 1990s, quite understandably, after everything that had happened. China hadn't yet risen to the extent that it had. Japan was in economically in the doldrums. Europe was still and is still sorting itself out in security terms, in foreign policy terms, even though it's a great success story in, in a lot of other senses. And I think that 1990s moment, without being a sort of triumphalist like Francis Fukuyama, American power was predominant in the 1990s. There were definitely challenges, and there were definitely a lot of nasty things going on around the world, just to say that America's power was predominant, that there was a unipolar moment doesn't necessarily mean it was, you know, that everything was rosy or that even it was a good thing. But that unipolar moment then comes crashing to a halt, not because of 9-11, that's the traditional interpretation, but because of Iraq. In fact, with 9-11, so many countries rallied around the unipolar moment, even the French rallied around the United States and were willing to take the American lead. And the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration, had this incredibly important moment of great potential for the United States to expand its power, along with others, in a way that it had done for in previous decades. And instead, Bush decided to use that moment, to, to use the legitimacy that, that 9-11 had given the United States in the eyes of a lot of the world, and he wasted it on Iraq. And when the war in Iraq then went badly, to me, that just completely destroyed any sense of credibility in America as a world leader before Barack Obama comes on the scene, before Donald Trump comes on the scene. Do you think that was always going to happen? That, okay, as you describe it, it was Iraq, but that you can't maintain that kind of level of preeminence, not least because other countries have their own interests and something's going to break it? Or do you think it was a mistake? I mean, was it structural or was it because the wrong choices were made. No, the wrong choices were made. It, so we could still structural. be living in that moment? We could absolutely still be living in that moment. I mean, China would still be rising, and, and as China rises, it will bring tensions with the United States, and there'll be in a rivalry. That's just normal great power politics. But in terms of American power and America's purpose in the world, and how a lot of people around the world saw that purpose, it was wrecked in Iraq, and Iraq was a choice that didn't have to be made. It certainly wasn't a structural outcome. You framed a history that does already, I think, illuminate something about Trump and what makes him different and what makes him not different. But if you take that sequence from George W. Bush, Barack Obama to Donald Trump, after Bush has squandered what he squandered, how big a break does Trump represent in that sequence of presidencies? Is he something still really out there? In foreign policy terms, no, I don't think so. I mean, he is certainly, um, he has his own style that I don't think uh, comes anything close to Barack Obama or George W. Bush or indeed any other American president. But if you move away from the style and look at the substance, and if you look at Trump's very nationalist foreign policy, it's not an isolationist foreign policy, but it's a very transactional foreign policy. American presidents were already tending in that direction, not because of 9-11, uh, but because of Iraq and then, of course, because of the Great Recession. 
and what that did to the country economically, and the domestic bases of support for a sort of global mission of the kind that George W. Bush saw in 2002, 2003, just, just evaporated, completely evaporated. So even if Donald Trump wanted to resuscitate that unipolar moment, I don't think he could. I just don't, or any president now, if they wanted to do that, couldn't, because there's just not the stomach for it in the United States, except among the people whom Ben Rhodes and Barack Obama referred to as the blob, the sort of foreign policy elites in Washington, D.C., who very much want to continue that kind of mission from the 1990s and the early 2000s. There is an anxiety that even if Trump represents some kind of continuity, the legacy of a Trump presidency will be something dramatically different because what's gone is some fundamental level of trust, some fundamental belief, if you go back to the start of what you were describing, that America has a mission at some level to connect to the rest of the world. And that that will take more than just another presidency to rebuild, that trust has gone. I think absolutely. Trust has gone with certainly America's allies. And Trump is breaking a lot of norms and breaking, not maybe not breaking a lot of relationships, because I think it would take a lot more than a few insults over Twitter to break uh, relations with very strong, organically strong allies like Canada and Germany and Britain and France. But style matters in diplomacy, style matters in politics, and how Donald Trump goes about doing things matters a lot. And I don't believe that American power in the abstract is in decline. The United States is still the world's most powerful state, much more powerful than China in almost any way you can measure it. But if there is a crisis of American power, it'll be self-inflicted, sort of like Iraq was, because of how Donald Trump is conducting his foreign policy. He's alienating allies. And I'm all in favor with negotiating and, and conducting diplomacy with adversaries. I think it's, it's a great thing to be having negotiations with North Korea and to be having talks with China. But when you're seen to be almost ideologically closer to countries like that than you are to your traditional allies in Japan and Canada and Britain and countries like that, then I can't see how that can't have a negative legacy in the next few years. Now, whether it's a long-term legacy or whether it's something that just disappears in four years or eight years or whatever, only time will tell. People used to talk a lot about the difference between soft power and hard power. Do you think the era of soft power is over? I'm not sure there ever was an era of soft power. I mean, power is about making others do what they wouldn't otherwise do. You want them to do it. They don't want to do it, but you're, you're going to get them to do it. And I'm not sure soft power ever did that. I'm not sure blue jeans or Hollywood or Coke or all the things that are held up as American soft power or even foreign aid really actually made others do things. There was a certain attraction to the American system, and I think there still is. The United States is still a very popular destination, the most popular destination for international students, university students who want to go study abroad. They're still flocking to the United States despite the rhetoric about immigration. There's still a lot that's very attractive about the United States. It's culture of innovation, it's system of higher learning, but I'm not sure that actually translates into power. What we're seeing is that hard power is a lot more difficult to use than it has been before. And what, to go back to Iraq once more, what Iraq showed is that hard power has a lot of limits. I mean, we've seen that in other wars as well, but if you want something done, then even if you want it done quickly, going to war isn't necessarily going to be the answer, especially if for the reasons that the United States went to war in Iraq. One last question. We 
done quite well. We've got this far without talking about whether America is exceptional or not. But I want to ask you a version of that question to end with. And this is from an article that Pankaj Mishra wrote in the London Review of Books. Pankaj Mishra, who was a guest on this podcast a while back, he's writing about another author, Samuel Moyne. And he says, American liberals, Samuel Moyne wrote last year in dissent, have never broken, quote, with the exceptionalist outlook that casts the United States as uniquely virtuous. But having Trump in the cockpit of American power will reveal, quote, just how terrifyingly normal a nation we are with our populist jingoism and hawkish foreign policy. Do you agree with that? Do you think that actually what we're seeing with Trump is that America is not the exceptional nation? It is like other countries. I think America is like other countries. I think it always has been like other countries. Americans themselves haven't believed that, but nobody believes that their own country is normal. Everyone believes their country in some way is exceptional. American exceptionalism as a doctrine means two things. It means either that the United States is different from other countries, and you can measure that difference in any number of ways, that there's no socialism in the United States, or there are more guns, or there's more religion. And scholars have been looking at that kind of exceptionalism for a long time, but not very many historians or sociologists or political scientists agree that the United States is different across the board, that it might be different in certain respects, but every country is different in certain respects, and a lot of ways in which the United States thought that it was exceptional. For example, being an immigrant nation, it turns out after doing more comparative research that countries like Canada or Argentina, other New World countries, had a much higher proportion of immigrants per capita than the United States did, even in the late 19th, early 20th century. And that's true on, an, on any number of ways in which you want to measure American difference. The other way Americans think that they're exceptional is that they're better than other countries. And that's just a kind of form of nationalism. But even very peaceful countries have that kind of nationalism. They think that they're better than other countries. What's not normal about the United States is the scale of its power. And that's been true for a long time. And so what the United States says it can then do. So if it says it's a special nation, if it says it's different, and because it's different, it's therefore better, and because it's therefore better, it has a duty or a right or a responsibility to spread its values. That's what's different about the United States. And that's what has been different about the United States for the last 70 years or so. To find links to some of the things that Andrew talked about, please follow us at tppodcast underscore. Our next Talking Politics Guide is to technocracy. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. Oh, was he very serious? I can't remember what mood you were in when you... Oh, were, I was... Were we, right, we were deep. I'm always very serious on the show, David. Do, do, do a Canadian one as well. Oh, no, now I'm on the spot. No, no, no. I need on. I need my Justin socks. Okay, so just... Is it is it rolling? Is this the... It's rolling. It's all okay. rolling. you just done it. Right, okay. So the last time Congress declared war was 1942. The last time Congress declared war was 1942. I can't do it any other way. <laughs> well, that must be the way you do it. Then. It must be, yeah.